Um, I want to talk about discouragement and disappointment for a bit. I don't know anybody that gets to be 50 years old that doesn't have some level of disappointment they carry in their soul. You know, it's not that life is bad. It's that life isn't all you dreamed it was going to be when you're in your 20s. In your 20s, you know, you have all these dreams. They're not always expressed. They're just there. And, you know, there's sort of ideals. It's about your marriage and what your marriage is going to be like. It's about your kids and how your kids are going to turn out and what they're going to do and what they're going to accomplish. It's about your finances. It's about your ministry. It's about fruit. It's about all kinds of stuff. And the reality is, life doesn't turn out the way you dream. Ever. It's not that it's not good. Because there's a lot of good. It's just not exactly what you hope. But by the time you get to be 50, you're going to be disappointed in some stuff. And you got to learn how to process it. Now, the reality is, you obviously suffer disappointments along the way. And you get disappointed. Some people get disappointed a lot earlier. But I don't know anybody that gets to be 50 that doesn't carry around disappointment in their soul. If you don't unpack it from the suitcase, it'll lead you to take offense at God. And it'll rob you of all your passion. And so you have to really unpack this. This is why so many people end up finishing the journey without passion. I cannot tell you how many times. I mean, I speak to literally, you know, probably I'll speak to 10,000 pastors this year before the year is out. And I cannot tell you how many times I talk to pastors who've lost all their energy, their passion, and their zeal. They're just going through the motions. And so much of it is they never unpack disappointment and discouragement in their souls. And so this is why I want to talk about this subject. And again, I wasn't planning on it, but I felt like it was something that I needed to do. And so I'm going to walk you through some of my own journey. And, uh, and I'll give you some big you know, sort of principles in the way as well. But um, I, I was <clears throat> wrestling with something uh, a number of years ago that I... Never thought I'd wrestle with. I was wrestling with the question, does God lie? It wasn't a theological question. Obviously, I knew the answer theologically. I did not need anyone to tell me biblically the answer. It was an emotional question. The problem was I had these promises that the Lord had given me. Some of these promises that he had given me were incredibly clear promises that could not be disputed. For example, one of them came via an audible voice. It's really hard to dispute the audible voice of God. One of them came with a dream, and in the dream, there was a sign. The sign was, the dream was about revival. The sign came to me in 2006 in a dream, and the sign of the coming revival was that the New Orleans Saints were going to win the Super Bowl. This was in 2006 I had this. And of course, 2010, the Saints win the Super Bowl, and I've been fighting for revival all these years, and I'm still not seeing what I want to see. And I'm telling you, I was so disappointed that I was wrestling with the question, does God lie? And so I said to my wife one year, I said, if I don't sort this out, I'm going to quit. Because I can't do the motion thing, just going through the motions and collecting the paycheck. I've got to unpack this, really unpack this. Because I've gotten to the place where I've taken offense at God. Because I'm so hurt that he's not delivering and so, I called up my buddy Ron. And I'll tell you the reason I called Ron, and he would never mind me sharing this story. The reason why I called Ron was because, years earlier, I had seen him and he was teaching with me in a class. And at the end of the class, I said to him, but I need to take you out to lunch today. And uh, he goes, okay. And I took him out to lunch and I said to him, 
what's wrong in your relationship with God? He goes, what? What do you mean? Nothing. I go, come on, it's me. It's not the class. This is me. He goes, what do you mean? I said, you're teaching all your material and you're teaching from your gifting, but the anointing isn't there the same as it was. There's a block in your intimacy. And I said, you're clearly upset or something's wrong in your relationship with God. What is it? And he literally punches the table and he yells, he lies! And I burst out laughing. Because that's the kind of good friend I am. And he laughed too. And I said to him, okay, now we're ready to talk. You know? And he went through this whole season where he's really wrestling with all these disappointments too. He's a little bit older than me. And so he got there a little quicker than I did. And uh, so I knew that I could unpack my junk with him. So I called him up one day in the midst of this thing. And, you know, my buddy Ron's a really, really busy guy. You know, he's traveling all over the world speaking, dean of the seminary, etc., etc. So I called him up and I said to him, buddy, I said, I need a day in your life. One of the reasons why I love Ron Walborn is because of his response. He said, when do you need it? And I said to him, I'm going to make it fun for you. How about that? I said, the Pirates are in the playoff for the first time since Lincoln was in administration. So what if we go to uh, a Pirates playoff game, I'll buy the tickets, good seats, you know, right near the dugouts, and and on the way down, it's like an eight-hour drive down, we'll unpack, and I'll just share, and then on the way back, we can unpack some more, so I can really relieve the car time with discussion, and then while we're there, we'll wear Pirates gear, root for the Pirates, even though I could care less about the Pirates, I'm a Yankee fan, so he's like, okay. So we get in the car, on the whole way down, I'm unpacking stuff. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's ugly. I am angry, I am pissed, I am yelling, I am hurt, I am crying. I mean, it's nasty, ugly. I let out a few curses. I mean, I'm unpacking this thing and it ain't pretty, okay? And um, he, he basically said one thing to me that was incredibly interesting and at the same time uh, didn't sound very spiritual. It was incredibly helpful to me. And then he said one other thing to me. The first thing he said to me was this. He just said, but he goes, you leave this stuff to your toes. You just keep fighting for it. And I said, it's true. And he goes, you'll get through it. But then the second thing he said that would sound very spiritual turned out to be incredible advice. And this is what he said to me. He goes, you're a really intense guy. I'm like, I know that. He's like, you need to have more fun. And I thought, that's it? But it was interesting. What I did was I took him up on it and I became as intentional about fun as I am about other things that I'm really driven towards. And I started really being intentional about fun, but here was the rules. I would engage in fun intentionally with a grateful heart towards God. What it actually did was, and you know, when you wrestle with disappointment, one of the things that gets tainted is the goodness of God at the center of your being. And if you will intentionally engage in fun with a grateful heart, it will restore the goodness of God to the center of your soul. Psalm 34, verse 8, it's an amazing verse, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good. But really, how do you taste and see that God is good? I mean, you can't lick him or anything. So what does it mean to taste and see that God is good? In some ways, part of what it means is that you're supposed to engage in the goodness that God has given us in gifts in life with a grateful heart. And you will know he's good. And I was incredibly intentional about that. It changed my life. It was really, really helpful. In the midst of this thing, I'm unpacking all this disappointment. I'm unpacking all this stuff, you know, with Ron and with my wife. I couldn't tell many people 
The reason why you can't tell many people is when you're in ministry, you know, you go to your staff one day and you go, you know, I'm really wrestling with the idea that God lies. You know, it really freaks them out. <laughs> like, I could have told them, like, that I was struggling with lust and my staff could have handled that. Because we are very open, honest, and vulnerable. But struggling with God lies and that I might not make it in ministry, that's about their job security. And so I couldn't unpack it. As one point, I was honest with one of my staff, and I saw them freak out, and I went, we can't go there together, can we? And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to go there with you. And so I went there with two people, and one of them was Ron, and the other one was my wife. And I started unpacking this stuff. It was an incredible process. I just want to give you a couple of big principles that helped me with the unpacking, and then I'll tell you the stories. How do you work your way through the darkness of this kind of disappointment and discouragement. Here's, here's the first thing. Uh, you're going to have to be really honest, brutally honest, with God and with probably a very select group of people. Brutally honest. I, I love the lament songs. You know, half the psalms in the New Testament, are, I mean in the book of psalms, are lament songs, right? And they're these grieving psalms. And they're so interesting to look at. They're so raw, but yet they're still reverent. So Psalm 13, for example. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I love his attitude. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? Or so this one, Psalm 38. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All of my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sight. Is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails, even the light has gone from my eyes. The reality is, you know, these guys were really good at processing emotion. And what they did was, they were incredibly good at getting this stuff up and out. And what I started doing when I was in this season was I was praying the Psalms, just sort of praying them through in my own words and getting this stuff up and out. And I was talking to people about it. The reality is we got a lot of pain and we got to get this stuff up and out. For me, I had pain over, you know, some of my, uh, you know, <coughs> ministry goal issues. I was getting killed on the, on the ministry level at that season in my life. So there was disappointment there. I had visions for what I thought the Lord wanted, what he spoken to me about things, renewal and so on. And they weren't coming true. There was disappointment there. Um, really raw moment. But one of my kids got date raped. You know, you just, that's painful stuff. And I mean, I just, she ended up, which happens with kids when they end up getting, you know, that kind of an abuse. Uh, they act out. They act out because they're trying to regain control of that which has been stolen from them. It was intensely painful. And, you know, so there was disappointment on family levels. There was disappointment on ministry levels. And, you know, it's just so much. And so uh, when I went through that thing with Ron, I just unpacked all that stuff. I just packed, unpacked all the stuff, just sense of just disappointment with God and how he didn't deliver. And, uh, you know, it's raw, honest, brutally so. But I still was reverent. I want you just to notice something about the lament psalms. They all have something in common. This is what they do. In fact, just give you the pattern. This is the pattern. Oh God, life's really, really bad. It's really, really bad. It really, really sucks. Where are you? How could you not do this? How could you leave me like this? I can't believe you didn't deliver. And then by the end, it's okay. I trust you. I surrender. And that's it. That's the pattern every time. They get it all up and out, and then they surrender. But hear me. The reason why they get through their grief 
is because they look to God at the end. I see a ton of people who never get through grief. They get stuck in a cycle of sadness because they never actually surrender and look up and out of their disappointment. And sooner or later to get out of this stuff, if you're really going to process and not just talk about your pain, you got to look up and out and you got to surrender this stuff. And that's another reason why I went to the Psalms. And so that was part of the process, and again, I'll, I'll share more later on. One thing I will say, one day in my conversation with Jen, when I was wrestling with this question, does God lie? And I was just being honest with her, and I just said to her, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's just not delivered. He told me stuff, like, out loud, audible voice stuff. He gave me promises with a sign. You know, none of this stuff's come true. And I said, I am so disappointed. I feel like God has lied to me. And my wife, you have to understand, she's really struggled in her relationship with God. It has not come easy to her. And the fundamental struggle has been struggling with the goodness of God. Not because of anything the bad that has happened to her, because the world is so bad. She wonders, where is the hand of the goodness of God in a world that is full of such tragedy and pain? Particularly her heart for children. And so she has really fundamentally struggled through the trust issue with God. And she sat there and looked at me with tears in her eyes. If anybody else would have said this to me, I would have discredited them and thrown them out of the house. But I knew her struggle. And she looked at me and she said to me, he's the king, huh? he can do what he wants. And I laughed and said to her, it's true, he can lie if he wants to. I said, but I can't trust him if I think he lies. I've got to get through this. And so I kept expressing this stuff. If you looked at my prayer journal in those days, they mostly looked like a mess. I looked a bit like a schizophrenic probably in my prayer journals. I'm unpacking this stuff. Second thing that I would say really helped me in this season. you got to guard against misplaced passion when you're processing pain. Always guard against misplaced passion when you're processing pain. Again, once again, David, master, master tactician of the soul. Uh, Psalm 141. Oh Lord, I call to you. Come quickly to me. Hear my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Set a guard over my mouth. He's in a season of difficulty. And listen to what he prays. He's, 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 he's processing stuff, but then he says, set a guard over my mouth. That's because he realizes that in a season of pain, he is more tempted to say things unfiltered. That he would one day regret. I love this prayer. But he's not done yet. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil. When you're in a season of darkness. It's amazing how the darkness starts to appeal to you. And things that you normally wouldn't be tempted by. You would take pleasure in. To take part in wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Let me not eat of their delicacies. This is brilliant. He just knows that in this season, he's going to have to be a little more guarded. What happens is this, you know. Think of your passion and your disappointment on opposite sides of like a scale or a teeter-totter. Remember those you know, old teeter-totters you used to sit on on the playground, right? So when your passion is high and your disappointment is low, but when your disappointment gets high, your passions start to have no place to go. Your passion always runs towards your dreams, the things you believe in, things you're excited about, you know, things you love. And all of a sudden, when you're disappointed about those things, all the passion ebbs out. Now what happens is your passion has no place to flow. It can't flow to the things you care deepest about. So you end up with misplaced passion. David understood that. 
He knew he was going to struggle with things like lust and things like that if he didn't wrestle down his disappointment. And so that was part of the process. I really knew I had to wrestle it out, um, and I had to get through this thing. So I expressed it openly, honestly. By the way, I think most midlife crises are nothing more than accumulated disappointments. There's stuff that got accumulated, nobody ever unpacked. I think that's why David has an affair. He has a series of accumulated disappointments. Listen, the guy had disappointments with his family. The guy had disappointments with the kingdom. It's funny, he's the greatest king Israel knew, right? And yet he was incredibly disappointed. You know why he was disappointed? He was in his 50s. He thought by this time he had conquered all his enemies and he'd be living in peace. At the time that kings went off to war, he went and had an affair. Why? Because he was tired of fighting. He wanted the battle to be over. The weight of leadership had worn him thin. And he was tired of the fight. He was disappointed. And it was an accumulated series of disappointments that led him into this thing. And so often that's what happens to us. Third, you really have to fight to keep your heart soft when you're in these dark seasons. It's a battle. It's easy to take offense at God. I'll tell you something. In that season of my life, I made a vow to the Lord once I started you know, realizing I had taken offense. I made a vow to the Lord that I would never take offense at Him again. And I have never taken offense at Him again. But it is a battle not to take offense at God. There are times God does not deliver on the level that I want Him to deliver, and I'm incredibly disappointed. We have another kid right now that's really in a deep struggle. It's incredibly hard when your kids struggle not to feel disappointed and even wrestle with where is God? Why did He deliver? I'm giving my life to Him. I'm serving. I'm doing all this stuff. And God, He can't even protect my kids. And you know, that kind of stuff creeps into our souls. I refuse to allow that stuff to taint my view of God. And I refuse to take offense any longer with Him. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Notice this, man, number one priority, guard your heart. I'll just add, the unguarded heart becomes a death spring. And this is why it's so important to guard our heart. By the way, when he says guard your heart, he's not talking about self-protection, right? That would not be in the vocabulary of God. He wants you to have him as your protection. It's not be guarded. His point is keep your heart broken, soft, contrite. Humble, in a position and posture to receive. That's the guard he wants you to keep up. Not self-protective. When you put a shield up, your heart grows hard under the shield. As I said before, the problem with shields are indiscriminate. Not only they block out the person who's hurting me, they block out God from accessing me. And under places where God doesn't get access, your heart grows hard. And so I cannot put up shields. One of the things that's really, really helpful to me in the seasons when I'm trying to keep my heart soft is always to go back to the promises, Romans chapter 8, James chapter 1, to remember that God redeems everything that comes into my life to make me more like Jesus. It's really helpful to know His redemption. As a matter of fact, if you ask me, somebody recently, when I went and spoke someplace to a bunch of pastors, the interview opening question to me was, you know, what's your favorite characteristic about God? I didn't have to think about it, I can tell you. Right off the top of my head, it's really easy. He's redemptive. The fact that God is redemptive gives me hope in every dark corner. Because He can take whatever is there, redeem it in my life, and use it for good. No matter what comes my way, He can redeem it. 
And that's what Romans 8 says, right? James 1, though, tells us to rejoice in times of trials and tribulations because he can redeem it, right? But he throws something in that Paul didn't throw in. He says, and we always quote this about life decisions. If anybody lacks wisdom, you know, let him ask God, not doubt, and so on. And, you know, God will give wisdom. It's not about life. It's not about wisdom. That's fine. You can quote it that way, but that's not his point. His context is suffering, hardship, trials. What he's saying is, listen, if you don't know how God could redeem a trial in your life to make you like Jesus, ask him, he'll tell you. He's not trying to keep it from you. He's trying to grow you up. He wants to cooperate with you. So literally, every time I suffer, this is what I do. I get on my face before the Lord, and I recall Romans chapter 8, that he can redeem everything that comes into my life to make me like Jesus. I recall the promise in James chapter 1, that we can rejoice in trials and tribulations because they can make us perfect. If we lack wisdom, we should ask. And then I ask, Lord, what do you want to do? How do you want to redeem this? How are you going to redeem this in my life to make me like Jesus? If you tell me, I'll cooperate. I promise. I pray that when my kids suffer, I pray it when I suffer, I pray it when Jen suffers. And you know what? He always, he always delivers. It's funny, in the midst of this season, when I was really, really disappointed and struggling, uh, God disappeared on me. It's the only time in my life I've ever been through a dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is not about pain. It's about the disappearance of the presence of God. It's like all of a sudden you can't sense God's presence. And I couldn't hear his voice. It was the first time in my life. The only time I ever heard his voice when I was ministering. But he would never talk to me alone. Which was a little frustrating, actually. And then, on top of that, I couldn't sense his presence at all. Not even when I was preaching. It was like I could never sense his presence. And um, it was complete darkness. And I went through this season where it was utterly dark. And uh, it was funny, in the midst of it, one day I was sitting in my living room, and I'm just weeping. And my wife walks into the living room, and she looks at me, and she goes, what's wrong? And I said, I, I just miss him. I've spent my entire life cultivating his presence, and I miss him. And then uh, two weeks later, she actually came back into the living room, and she said to me, you know, I'm sobbing again. She said to me, what's wrong? And I said, I sensed his presence again today. You know, it's the first time in six months that sensed his presence. It's funny, it's been years. His presence is still fairly intermittent for me since then. It'll come and go. He's real quiet lots of days. But I refuse to take offense anymore. I loved reading John of the Cross's book on the dark night of the soul. Unfortunately, I'd read it before I went into a dark night. Because what Don, John said was that the purpose of these dark nights is purgation. That is, God is trying to purge something, cleanse something, do something deeper. But I think before every next level of intimacy is a fresh level of purging. You can't get to the next depth with God without more purging. And what I did in that season was literally I'd sit before the Lord every day and say, I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know you're trying to purge me. Whatever you want, you can have. Do your thing. I had no idea because he wasn't talking to me, so I didn't know what he wanted to access. But I knew he was accessing something. And one last thing that I would give you here in this, uh, in the battle of keeping your heart soft. And I want to I look at a, a passage in, in Hebrews. Can you turn there while I set the stage for this? I'll turn there too. Hebrews chapter 11, if you just look there. It's the Hall of Faith passage. I was fighting to keep my heart soft. I'm in the midst of a dark night of the soul. And one day, I, I just, I felt inspired, if you will, to read this passage in Hebrews chapter 11. I thought, you know, here I am really struggling with my faith. And uh, these guys are all having deep 
you know, faith. I mean, they're the Hall of Faith people. So I thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this passage one day, and I turned to Hebrews chapter eleven, and I read the story of these great men and women who experienced great things from God. They all have a common storyline. This is the common storyline. They got a promise from the Lord. They held on to the promise, and God delivered every time. That's the storyline, right? Now hear me. For some of them, like Abraham, the promise didn't come until 25 years later. Well, that's really easy to read in a paragraph. It's a heck of a lot harder to live when it's your 25 years. You don't feel the pain and the blood and the tears in the paragraph. But he did. And you read through, and it's all these people, they get promises, they hold on, God delivers. They get promises, God delivers. They get promises, God delivers. And then you get to verse 32. Just read that with me, will you? And what more shall I say? I don't have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies, women received back their dead, raised to life again. Come on, aren't these great stories? Until you're in the darkness. They had a promise, God delivered. If he had ended there, it would have been better. Just not true. So he doesn't. There were others who were tortured. Wait a second. That's not supposed to be the storyline. Refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. What kind of faith does that take? Some faced tears, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, sawn in two, killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, mountains, living in caves, holes in the ground. And then this verse. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. I read that verse that day in the midst of the dark night of the soul, an incredible disappointment and discouragement. And I read that verse and I said, see, you do lie. You gave these guys a promise and you didn't deliver. And that's right where you've got me. And then I read the end of the verse. You really need to read to the end. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. I read that verse that day and something struck me that had never struck me before in the scriptures. This is what struck me. There are times in your life where God gives you a promise and you think it is for you. He didn't let you know it wasn't for you. And you fight for it with all your heart. And it doesn't come true. Because it wasn't for you. It was for the next generation. You see, you're part of a kingdom. It's not all about you. You make it about you. But it's not all about you. There are some battles that God is causing you, calling you to fight for families family of God that you will never see fulfilled. He wants to know, do you have enough integrity? Do you have enough intimacy? Do you have enough character to fight for those battles that are not for you for the next generation? 
I literally laid on my face that day and sobbed. And I said to the Lord, I will fight for revival with my dying breath, no matter how bad I am beaten, as long as the next generation gets to see it come. And I will never take offense at you again. That was the last day I ever took offense at God in my life. It changed me. You are fighting for battles around here. You need to know you're never going to see. But someone else will see if you keep up the fight. But if you get discouraged, you will give up the heart that you need to fight the battle that you need for the next generation. There are people who will come after us, who will stand upon our shoulders and go further than us only because we fought the battle that was not for us, but for them. And we must be the kind of people that fight those kind of kingdom battles for the victories of others. Are you with me? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the end of the story. At the end of the day, you know, really what we have to do is we've got to seek God with all our heart and we have to surrender. I said to the uh, school yesterday, Thanks for the t-shirt. The modeling for you too. <clears throat> I said in the school yesterday, my motto for seeking God is this, you know. Ever grateful. I mean, if God gives me a little tiny whisper of his spirit, I'm going to be grateful. If he gives me a sense of his love, I'm going to be grateful. I have determined I will be forever grateful. Ever grateful, never satisfied. There's always more of God. Ever grateful, never satisfied relentlessly pursuing him for more of his face. I tell you, when I get sideways, lots of times I'm pursuing him for his hands and not his face. We spend way too much time seeking God for his hands. God, give me this. God, do this. God, fix this. God, heal that. God, do this. God, fulfill this dream. Fulfill this vision. Do this. And then what happens is we're spending so much time seeking his hands, we've missed his face. It's about intimacy. Truth is, it requires intimacy to fulfill the promise because it's only in the presence that the promise is fulfilled. You can't do the promises of God in the strength of your character or in the quality of your gifts. You can only fulfill the presence of the promises of God in the power of His presence. That's what it takes. And so, ever grateful, never satisfied, relentlessly pursuing Him for more of His face, never taking offense. That motto guides my life. It is determined inside of me that I will always do that in my pursuit of God. And so with that in mind, you know, I got to a place in my journey where I needed to uh, sort of get through this season. And I, I surrendered the issues that I needed to surrender. And so I was through the, you know, sort of deep, dark night of soul and started entering into his presence. But I, I still was discouraged every day of my life. And literally every day I would wake up, like the disappointment was gone, the dark night was gone, but I was disappointed every day. Every day I would get up and have to fight to overcome the weight of disappointment. And I'd win the day, and then it would come back tomorrow. I'd get above it for a week, and then we'd be back the next week. And I'd be like, I cannot. Two years, every day, I battled disappointment. And finally one day, I was in my backyard, and I'm sitting in my backyard, and I am, I said to the Lord, I said, I have never been able, not been able, to surrender my way through an issue in my life. This is the first time in my life I can't surrender my way through an issue. And as soon as I said it, I went, that's the problem. I am surrendering a symptom, not the root. You cannot surrender a symptom. 
Too often what happens in our journey is we have a symptom, like in this case, disappointment. And we're trying to give up the disappointment, but we can't get rid of it. And finally I went, I don't have the root. If I can get to the root, I can surrender and I'll be free from disappointment. I literally went inside. My wife was sitting at the kitchen table and I walked in and I said, I got this sucker, it's going down. And she looked at me and she goes, the disappointment? She knew I was bad. I said, yes. She goes, how did you get it? I go, I don't have the root. She goes, what's the root? I go, I have no idea, but it doesn't matter. Because as soon as I find it, I'm going to surrender. It's going to be over. And she just laughs. Literally, a week later, we're sitting at the same table. And we're talking about church. And I said this statement to her. I said, I feel like I'm wasting my life. And this is what I meant. If I had gone any place else on the planet, I could have seen so much more fruit. But I have been stuck with this stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious New England people. And as a result, we have not seen the breakthroughs that I want to see in the territory that I want to see. I don't want to just grow a church. I want to see a move of God that changes the territory. And as soon as I said that, I said, that's the root of disappointment. I feel like I'm wasting my life. And the Father has a right to ask me to waste whatever I want to waste, whatever he wants me to waste. And he has called me here. And I literally surrendered. That was the last day in my life I've spent more than six, seven hours in disappointment. It completely broke. Listen, you can navigate your way out of darkness, but not if you don't unpack the stuff that's in the suitcase. You'll never get out by ignoring it. You can only get out by processing it. And you've got to get to the roots. And honestly, I wasn't planning on giving this talk. But when I woke up this morning, I sensed the Holy Spirit saying to me, you need to process this. And some of you in this room have some stuff that you need to process. And, uh, and I could sense it this morning. And so I offer this to you as a, as a tool to just process some of the garbage that accumulates in the suitcase of the soul. Alright, so any final thoughts, comments, questions, process points? You were so talkative the first time, I'll give you a second shot <laughs> on any of the stuff that we've talked about today. I'm happy to chat if you have anything you want to chat about. <laughs> you are a talkative staff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, the key really, again, you always have to get to root issues, right? So for a long time, Laura, I mean, I'm trying to surrender myself the issue of disappointment, but it wasn't the root. And so what you're going to discover, right, all of us discover in our spiritual journey sometimes is we're fighting the wrong battle. Now, people come up to me all the time, for example, and they're struggling with lust and, you know, they're confessing lust. Listen, lust is a symptom. It's not a root issue. What we do too often in the church is, you know, we look at them and we're really helpful and we say, stop that. Oh, thank you. I never thought of that. <laughs> you are so helpful. I'm going to come back to you tomorrow so I can hear that again. That was great. Seriously, why are you struggling with lust? You know, the answer sometimes is because you're really angry and lust isn't known. 
The answer other times is because you lack courage to have the deep, difficult, hard, intimate, building conversation. And your lack of courage causes you to withdraw from intimacy and go for false intimacy. you got to know what the root is. Wisdom requires us to get to root issues to break through patterns of behavior. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're stuck in a behavior and you're, and you're, and you're stuck, it's because you didn't get to the root. That's, that's why you're fighting a symptom. And when I was stuck, I should have known this. I knew enough to know this. When I was stuck for two years in disappointment, I should have been smart enough to go, I don't have this thing by the root. I'm, I'm trying to manage the symptom. And when I finally realized that, I went, oh my gosh, I've been wasting two years fighting this thing. And literally a week later, it was over. You know? So when here's my first clue, really. When you're battling for a long time in the same direction, with the same result, you probably don't have the root. Get some help and get to the root. You know, pray fast, get along with some wise spiritual friends that you can process this thing and go, I got to be really honest and I got to get to the root because I'm probably not in the root. You have your hand up over here too. Have you? Yeah, uh, I was just wondering, you know, you're talking about not having a shield because that deflects what the Holy Spirit's trying to do as well protecting yourself but is there ever a time you feel like where you need to put your guard up to certain people or situations or... again there's a difference between a shield and a boundary let me let me use an illustration about boundaries that look healthy okay this represents you or me individual okay and you notice that it has distinct boundaries right it has places where it begins where it ends this is it this is not it right this is what happens when we have boundary confusion. Someone either takes responsibility for something that is mine, or someone puts responsibility on me for something that is yours. That is a confusion of boundaries. Often, what ends up happening in that process is there's also a confusion of emotions. They're upset and I'm anxious. Well, I'm not upset. I'm having emotional confusion over the fact that there's a boundary intersect here that's confused, and therefore I'm now picking up on their emotional disorders. I'm going, the heck, right? And so, what I have to do is I have to separate out and have a really clear boundaries. But, they're not shields. Again, the problem with shields is if I put up a shield, I'm lowering the conversation to the lowest level of dysfunction in the room. I'm actually letting the dysfunction determine my reaction. But if I put up a boundary, then I'm actually elevating the conversation to the highest level of functionality in the room. So again, example, somebody comes into your office or yelling at you, right? And you yell that. Well, that's great. You got yelled at, they got yelled at, you're even, tit for tat. Bad news is you just lowered the level of dysfunction in the room to the yell. Okay? But if in that same interaction, instead of yelling, I look at the person and say, again, you know what you're saying to me is really important, but you need to speak to me with dignity and respect. That's how I'll treat you. What I've just done is have the same conversation, but elevated the status of the room to the highest level of functionality in the room. I'm actually calling them to a higher level. Hear me. Boundaries preserve your dignity and the dignity of those around you. Shields never dignify anyone. And there's no honor. And so I have to use boundaries. It's just a healthy thing to do. So yeah, I have boundaries with people. Sure. And, you know, but I don't have to do it in a way that's dysfunctional. That makes sense? Even if it doesn't, it's true. 
Any other thoughts, comments, questions, process points? Have to process with you before you run. What's a year for your mantra, your four steps for your mantra started? Yeah, ever grateful, never satisfied, relentlessly pursuing him for more of his face, never taking offense. Uh, that never satisfied piece. Uh, what does it look like for you to be proactive in, um, or I guess what's what for me to be proactive in um, wanting to identify the things in my suitcase God wants to uproot and different things, yet I also have the tendency just to switch the mindset and have that be my like achiever thing of like, I'm going to be the most like whole and healthy in this. And uh, so, where's that balance of like, being proactive in pursuit of never satisfied, but recognizing um, God still says, like, wait, like, wait, rest in me, be proactive in this. I don't know if that question makes sense, but you can figure it out. Yeah, so this this particular mantra was about intimacy, right? Never satisfied, just, you know, so it's about pursuit. However, in answer to the question you asked, which was really about dealing with our inner issues, you know, what? here's what I think most people do. This is the mistake most people make. Most people press in to God when they have this painful junk in their suitcase of their soul. Press in to God enough to feel better. That's because they have the wrong goal in mind. Their goal is to feel better. They're honest. That's really their goal. Their goal is to feel better. So what they do is they don't press in and press through their issues. They don't actually get better. They feel better in the moment. The issue will cycle back on them another day. It may take a different form. But most people don't press in and press through to the fullness of Christ. What they do is they press in enough to, to, to alleviate the pain. And when the pain is alleviated, then they feel better and then they stop pressing in. When I started dealing with my issues, you know, I went to Leanne Payne, I read books. When I came home from Leanne Payne, I journaled every day, I processed this stuff. I read 50 more books on the issue of the soul because my goal was not to feel better. I wanted to press in and press through. I wanted to get all that Jesus had for me in his freedom and fullness. Now, here's the balance to all of the obsession that could occur, right? The balance is this. You have to get to the place where you're okay with being dysfunctional. Because you are. And you forever will be. It'll be healthier. But you're never going to be perfect. It takes exactly one day longer than a lifetime to finally become like Jesus. When you meet him face to face, you'll be like In the meantime, you're on a journey. Just be honest. And know he loves you. And settle into the rest of his acceptance. And then be really, really honest. I just don't hide stuff. I'm just really honest. And then there's ugly sides to me. When I have my ugly sides, I just talk about them. You know? And I, I'm pretty free to talk about them with lots and lots of people. But you know that I have really good, good friends that have really processed that stuff.